Welcome to Walasaha. My name is Dominique Norales. As you know, this is the curious home for the good troublemakers, the world changers, and the dream chasers. And for 2023, we're embarking on a special series with the Caribbean Youth Environment Network called In Betweenity, the Green Pod, made possible through the generous partnership with the Clara Lionel Foundation. Now, what is In Betweenity? It's a podcast that explores the in-between questions of this green phenomenon that is literally an existential crisis. We'll be talking to experts and laypeople, young and old, asking the tough questions that lurk in between the crises and our realities. For our inaugural episode, we wanted to lay the foundation with young people those who are at the forefront of lending their creativity, passions, and energy to combat and engage others in serious discussion and action about the climate situation today. I spoke with Javanik Henry of St. Lucia and Naomi Cambridge of Barbados, who in big and small ways are making sure the realities of climate change remain relevant in global and local dialogue. We explore the insidious climate anxiety, whether these big meetings make real impacts, and whether the Caribbean is being honest with itself about the green transition. Here are interviews. Earlier on, you mentioned how it sometimes becomes difficult, you know, for people living in the climate space, just in terms of, you know, being able to remain motivated and to feel that, you know, is this really worth it? Like I often ask that question um, and I also share that question with my colleagues as well Is that, are we, you know, like you say, in that small drop in the bucket, you know, does it really have an impact? Um, but of course, we are, you know the importance of collective action and when you add all of that. But in terms of climate anxiety, like you mentioned it, um, <laughs> It's a case where, you know, I mean, I'm going to go a bit of religion in here where they'll tell you that, um, you know, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, you know, it's the supreme beam knows all that and whatnot. But with the climate crisis, we actually have a good idea of what's happening tomorrow in our environment. We actually have a fair idea of what's going to be the situation on our islands 10 years from now, you know, 20 years from now. And the science is pretty clear at this stage. You know, so whereas why I use the religion context is that, you know, there's always that uncertainty, that aspect. But in the environmental aspect, we know what's going to come. <laughs> um, we know what is required to be done to prepare for it. Um, and of course, there comes a, a, the question of ambition and whether we're really going to do it. Um, so I think it, it can be a bit frightening. You know, I always tell people that I'm definitely not a scientist, but when I see <laughs> the data which is science, scientists provide it and and then you know when they do the modeling and so on it can be scary really easy to feel climate anxiety um and talking in like a, a general sense not for only members of small island developing states but globally when you have things like the climate clock and when you have um social media just spewing out all of this information about flooding and refugees and all these negative things that are happening and with us having only about six years to fix the issue it can be really overwhelming, especially like you said, for um, people like me who are in the Caribbean and people who are the most vulnerable to the issue. And it feels like very little is being done and not people and people are not taking it as seriously as they should. It can be really overwhelming and make you feel 
um, a sense of hopelessness, which I think is really counterproductive actually, because, well, first of all, the way that I combat the climate anxiety that I would feel is really filtering the social media that I see online. So for me, it's mainly Instagram that I use to um, keep up to date with climate uh, activism and climate change news and whatnot, like, and, and whatnot. And when I see all of these things happening, it can be really overwhelming. So what I tend to do is, if you notice, I don't really tend to share super negative things going on, even though there are, there's tons going on. But I try to share positive news. I try to share ways that people can help. I try to share um, other activists and what they're doing. Because when you have climate anxiety, what happens a lot is that people see how big the issue is and then they tend to feel like, oh my gosh, this is so scary and there's nothing I can do about it because there's so many different roadblocks and this issue is way bigger than I am. And then when you feel like that, you feel hopeless and then you do nothing because that's the way we're kind of wired. When you get so overwhelmed, you kind of shut down. And I can admit that that has happened to me before as well. So well, that's why I say it's counterproductive, because when you have climate anxiety and you get hopeless and you feel hopeless, you don't feel like doing anything. So instead of that, I think it's better to re rejuvenate that hopefulness in people by sharing what's going on, sharing the inspiring people that are doing so much positive work and sharing how, yes, it is an overwhelming issue. Yes, it is a really scary climate crisis that's going on. And yes, we don't have a lot of time to deal with it, but there is stuff being done and it is possible to actually get to the goals that we want to get to. Now, Naomi was definitely more solution oriented with her climate anxiety and managing it. And so moving on in the conversation, I had to ask them about these mammoth COP meetings that we have each year and whether a meeting that has a program budget of 67.4 million US dollars each year has lost its urgency. I kind of have a, a dual opinion on that. So yes, there have been tons of COPs going on every year for a very, very, very long time, longer than I've even been alive. And there is some disappointment that comes with the COPs in a number of different areas, because I do think that many of the leaders and heads of government and different actors in the international system do go and try and use the appearance of, of being a climate activist or appearance of caring about climate change issues to increase their approval rates or gain political traction. And they tend to, what happens a lot is they tend to go and talk holistically about these issues. They really get into the conversation and they talk about it, but then the follow through isn't there and they don't really do all of the things that need to be done. But I would disagree, though, that it's not just another meeting and there hasn't been any improvement because, for example, the last two COPs, COP26 and 27, really made its way into the mainstream. And I think that has to directly do with the urgency of the climate of the climate crisis. And what happened was the reason that there was urgency attached to these two COPs specifically, and especially the last COP, was because of the activists, specifically youth activists too, because the, the whole reason that urgency is still attached to climate change and urgency is still attached to fixing these issues and, and helping the people who are most vulnerable, like those in small island developing states, is because you have representatives coming from those areas to the COPs. I think actually this last COP had some of the highest numbers of youth activist attendees ever, and they definitely made a statement. And what really touched me is that 
you had a lot of youth activists that were representing indigenous groups. You had a lot of climate um, Caribbean activists as well, as well up there. Some of them even from the same organization that I'm with. And then you had those people not only spreading awareness of the issues, but also holding people accountable, what I would call climate culprits in check. They held those leaders accountable. They showed the issues that were going on. They were very vocal about things that are usually hush-hush, for example, like how Coca-Cola was one of the sponsors of the last COP and they're one of the major polluters in the world. And they really actually didn't just go there and play politics. First of all, I'm going to throw a controversial question out there um, in response to your, your, your question. Um, <laughs> do we really need a COP, a UNFCCC COP every year? You know, and I, of course, we all know, you know, um, you know, it's an annual event and so on, big political statements, blah, blah, blah pledges and so on. Oftentimes, we don't really meet the pledges. Oftentimes, it's a COP to say that, we didn't achieve the progress last year, but we're gonna do we're gonna delay on it until next year. I mean, we saw what happened with loss and damage. Of course, you know we agreed somewhat <laughs> to establishing a fund, but um, <laughs> it's gonna be interesting. COP twenty eight. In any case, you know why I said it? it's a case where I think definitely it has lost its urgency because we always speak about ensuring the urgency and the urgency that you know small islands the situation we face. We run in a lot of time. You know, twenty thirty agenda. Um, you know, then you have on the mitigation and in terms of net zero emissions and all of that, blah, 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 the financing, not meeting our financing goals. And it could be repeated, you know, I mean, for the past few years, I've been hearing of the, um, the, the, you know, the, 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 the $100 million goal. And yeah, fact yeah. of the matter is I keep hearing it every year, you know, I'm like, <laughs> so, in, and that's why you gave me to wonder whether there is really a need for a cup every year. Um, and, and the, but, that's not for me to decide, but just an outside thought here. But I think definitely has been sort of, I don't want to say over politicized, but on the urgency front, um, I really wish that we would see actually sort of moving of the needle to a greater extent when we get to these COP stages. So, you know, through the, all the, 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 the sessions before that and so on, get where the real work happens, I would like to say, you know, we can push more so that... <laughs> It's it's frankly for me it's it's a bit frustrating. I was telling colleagues at COP twenty seven that we're still trying to put forward a case for the need for loss and damage financing, for example. I mean, haven't we? Where have we been the past 10, 15 years? You know, to see the damage that you know small islands in the Caribbean face, those in the Pacific war, and the, the threats of the rising sea levels and so on. Um, you know, where did it be built in 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 the African continent and so on? So. You beg the question because the, the evidence is there and then you have this grand fanfare, like I call it. And like I said, I'm going to be very frank and open on it. Um, and then is the case where oh, we'll discuss this and come to an agreement, hopefully, in the next three to four years. And I'm like, why are you doing that? What is happening to our small islands? Both of these activists were very frank with their responses and they wanted more from the COP while also acknowledging its usefulness. And switching to more regional-based discussions, I had to pose a question in light of Guyana's oil power that Forbes notes is on pace to surpass U.S. offshore by 2035 with an Exxon resource estimate of 11 billion, that's billion with a B, barrels. Is the Caribbean being honest with itself in relation to its green transition ambitions? You know, that is also one of those controversial issues, um, well, often disputed 
um, issues within the international um, climate discussions, because we have a reality whereby, you know, most of what we consider to be the developed world, their economies were built on, you know, fossil fuel use and that kind of thing, right? Um, oil production and so on. And now you have a case where developing countries who are, of course, many of them are grappling with high debt levels, you know, high unemployment, uh, you know, and very challenging economic circumstances. And the discovery of, you know, oil, for example, in any small island or a small nation's um, background, it, 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 it's like, a, how do you call it? It's like heaven on earth, you know, because then, and I, I mean, you know, in the negotiations, it's, it's always can be very contentious in the sense that um, it's like you did it, your economies are not, for, well, supposedly thriving. Why can't we do it as well? But at the same time, where we wanted to support, you know, our efforts in building residence. So it, it, it's, it's, it can be a very complex um, situation. I don't think there is a, uh, a perfect answer because of course we want renewable energy. I mean, I'm one of those who's a strong advocate for renewable energy. I, I, I only, I, it still baffles me when I see the level of um, solar energy that is being capitalized on in our region. I mean, of course we're the region of sand, sea and sand, you know, and it's sad to say that, you know, we've not really been able both on the legislative front um, and, and otherwise to make that sector more attractive and more widespread. Um, but you mentioned, like you mentioned the, the, the case of Guyana, for example, and potentially other countries in the Caribbean with, um, you know, potential oil or whatnot. Um, and wanting to explore that sector. Would it put us at a sort of a, a disadvantage in the, when it comes to sort of negotiating for and putting pressure on the, the, the sort of bigger countries to, to reduce, to achieve the net zero targets and so on? You know, would it put us at a disadvantage? So it, it's a very difficult situation because you don't want to leave your economies in poverty, obviously, and we're pushing to get that sort of just transition. So it's, I mean, frankly, you ask whether it's a practical goal. I always say renewable energy is, is, is um, as definitely achieving, you know, it, our targets is quite practical. The challenge is how do we strike the balance? And I think that is critical. When you look at states like um like Guyana, who who really who recently just found all of this oil and is really um gaining development from it, yes it's beneficial for them since they have been an underdeveloped state in a state that's suffering that has suffered a lot in the international system i get that but i still think that the main priority has to be in check because like we said 2030 is kind of our for lack of a better word our doomsday date and when you think about what that means and the urgency of um our transition to renewable energy i think it's a huge necessity. And the thing is, the research has already been done. And the practicality and science of transitioning to renewable energy has already showed that there is countless, countless benefits to that transition, not only um, in terms of climate preservation, but economic benefits as well. And I think that if we as a region really focus wholeheartedly on that transition, then it can become a reality. However, though, we do face a lot of different um, roadblocks. I think that were expressed at the COP as well. We do face different roadblocks, for example, like debt constraints and um, a lack of resources and, and those different things. But I will commend us though, 
because we have been trying. We have definitely been trying. For example, I think in Barbados, because I can only speak for Barbados, um, for example, we've partnered with the Global Green Climate Fund, which is supposed to be setting up a green bank in the for a green bank headquartered in Barbados that is for the region to finance renewable energy projects. And then, of course, the government also has their Energy Smart Fund, which does the same thing. And then um, Prime Minister Motley was uh, spearheading the Bridgetown Initiative, which is supposed to essentially help developing, developing countries to finance their climate resilience since they are the most vulnerable, as we've established multiple times. So yes, I do think that there is uh, some benefits to, yes, the the fossil fuel usage and the um, the oil that we found in Guyana, but I, I think that we still need to, to focus on the real issue at heart because climate change is the biggest threat facing our region. And if we have all of this development and we have all of this revenue coming into our country, okay, how, how sustainable is that? Because you still have the issue of if a hurricane, a devastating hurricane was to hit, if an earthquake was to hit, if you had a tsunami, whatever it is, a lot of that will be wiped away. There you have it, our young foundation peoples questioning the narrative, grappling with the Caribbean formula of the green transition and climate anxiety that operates in between the lines of everyday people and their lives. Thanks for joining us here at Wallasaha for the inaugural episode of In Betweenity, the Green Pod, made possible through the kind generosity of the Clara Lionel Foundation. <laughs>